This morning, we're going to be in the Gospel of John, chapter 12, uh, verses 20 to 33. And the message is called His Full Reward. And I think about not, not so much a sense of reward, but just the sense of being able to give a gift to somebody. And it's something that I didn't truly appreciate until I became a father. And just there's something about getting a gift for your child that they've been wanting or a gift that they never thought they had a chance of ever receiving and and just the joy on their faces and the excitement as they open up that gift and i want to see this from a different perspective this morning as we come to john chapter 12. let's pick up at verse 20. now it says among those who went up to worship at the feast were some greeks so these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. So something significant has just taken place. Because verse 24, Jesus is going to start by saying, Truly, truly. And when Jesus says, Truly, truly, that means, Pay attention. I'm going to say something very important, but he says something very distinctive in verse 23 when he says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And he says this in response to what happened in verse 20, that among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So here we have a Jewish feast taking place. People are coming to the temple. They're coming to Jerusalem to worship God. And among those who are gathered, we have Greeks, we have Gentiles, who are coming to seek the God of Israel. And so Philip goes and he tells Andrew, and Andrew and Philip go together, they tell Jesus that there's Greeks, there's Gentiles who are looking specifically for him. And in response, Jesus says, the hour has come. This is a very significant statement. Because it's one of those statements that if, you know, typically we kind of read one chapter of the Bible at a time and kind of move on to the next. And, and sometimes we can lose some of those bigger themes. And in doing so, we lose this bigger theme of Jesus's hour, Jesus's time, which goes all the way back to John chapter 2. We're in John chapter 2. He says, my hour has not yet come. If you remember, Mary wants him to miraculously provide more wine for the uh, wedding feast and Jesus asks her and says don't you know that my hour my time has not yet come John chapter 7 verse 6 my time has not yet come John chapter 7 verse 30 my his hour had not yet come John chapter 8 verse 20 his time had not yet come so throughout John we see this constant anticipation of his hour had not yet come his time had not yet come his hour had not yet come and as a reader, you're kind of drawn in like, when will it come? And we keep seeing that as time hasn't come, but when will that time, when will that hour finally come? And so it's in response here in John chapter 12, where Jesus finally says, okay, the hour has come. The time is here that for 12 chapters, we've been anticipating when will his hour come. Here in chapter 12, it finally comes. In response to some Gentiles going up to Philip and saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. We want to know who this promised Messiah is and what he's about. 
Now, in between John chapter 8, where he says, my time has not yet come, and John chapter 12, we get this little passage in uh, John chapter 10, verses 14 to 16, where Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also. And they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. So what changes from John chapter 8, when we're still told, told that his time had not yet come, in John chapter 10, Jesus says, my flock is bigger than just the people of Israel. I have other sheep from another flock, from among the Gentiles. I must bring them in also. And then two chapters later, some of those other sheep are looking for Jesus. And so Jesus says, it's time. Now that the other sheep are now seeking me out, now that it's not just Israelites, but now we have Gentiles who are seeking me, he can declare the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And so he continues in verse 24 by saying, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. So Jesus talks about this grain of wheat that has to fall into the ground and die in order for it to bear much fruit. And in the immediate context, he's talking about his own life. That in order for the full fruit of the gospel to be recognized, he must lay down his life. But he also talks about whoever. In verse 25, whoever loves his life will lose it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. So he's applying this to more than just himself. He's applying it to any who would follow him. To take up their cross and follow him to also become that grain of wheat. I still remember when I was ordained at the Central District Conference in 2002. The pastor who spoke at that service talked about an acorn. And this tiny little acorn that we often don't think much about. But that little acorn has so much other potential within it. But in order for that to happen, something needs to happen to the acorn. The acorn has to split open. The acorn has to become to transform into something bigger than it was by itself until finally it grows into an oak tree. But see, if we just want to preserve this cute little acorn, we're never going to see the fullness of the oak tree. That precious little acorn needs to die in order for it to become something bigger than it was by itself. And there's a huge lesson in what Jesus says about the grain of wheat for us. I think the invitation here for Jesus is that we take up our life, we take up our cross and follow him, that we would not love our life in this world, but we'd be willing to take the acorn of our lives and allow him to break it open to make it something bigger than it was. In a sense, we live like we're waiting on God to act. 
don't we? Think about how we pray. We pray and we ask God, send revival. Send revival. And we do so in a very passive sense, as though we are sitting there kind of watching our clocks like, God, what are you waiting for? You know, any time would be great. You know, five years ago would have been even better. Lord, what are you waiting for? And so we live our lives like we're waiting on God to act, like we're waiting on God to do something. And meanwhile, God says, I'm waiting for you to crack open your acorn. I'm waiting for you to let me bring life out of you that's bigger than you have on your own. See, I want to keep my acorn intact. I like it. It's comfortable. It's nice. I, I have it figured out. I don't want God to blow it open. But I still want him to send revival. I want him to pour out his spirit in new ways. But I can't have it both ways. I keep living like I'm waiting on God to do something when he's the one waiting for me to fully surrender, to fully allow him to break my life open, to allow the fruit of the Holy Spirit to overcome me and become more than I am in myself. But I want to be comfortable and have revival at the same time. And it can't happen. And so often we're waiting for God to initiate it when I feel like it's God who's waiting for us to step into it, to lay down our lives, to surrender to the fullness of his Holy Spirit. Verse 27. He says, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. So again, Jesus talking about the fact that the the time has finally come, the hour has finally come for him to lay down his life. And he acknowledges in verse 27 that his soul is troubled. And we see a glimpse of that when he prays in Gethsemane, where it says that his sweat became like drops of blood, that the pressure, the internal stress he was facing was causing capillaries to burst open and blood to be mixing in with sweat. But Jesus says, what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? He says, for this purpose, I have come to this hour. This is why Jesus came. So often we can look at the crucifixion and and think like it's just some tragic turn of events. If you talk to those who don't follow Jesus and, and don't read scripture, they can almost talk about how Jesus being crucified was such a tragedy. He was such a good teacher and and just such a kind man. It was so tragic that they crucified him. That's why he came. That was his purpose. His purpose was to come into the world, to go to the cross for us. To take our sins upon himself that we could be reconciled back to God. That is why he came to the world in the first place. He didn't come just to be a nice guy, to give nice teachings. He came to live a perfect and sinless life that he, be, he could become our substitute on the cross so that through him we can have eternal life. In verse 28, he says, Then, Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. Notice here in verse 28, where he says, Father, glorify your name. Now jump back to verse 23, where it says, And Jesus answered them, 
The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. But now Jesus turns that and says, Father, glorify your name. There's a principle of the kingdom. That your life is most fulfilled when you bring God the greatest glory. Jesus' glory was found in glorifying the Father. And in a world that says, look out for yourself, look out for number one, you, you push yourself to the top, you, you push yourself forward, you make a name for yourself, the kingdom says, your life will be fullest when you devote your life to bringing God the greatest glory. That sounds counterintuitive. That sounds like you're living for somebody else. Exactly. That's why Jesus says, if you love your life, you're going to lose it. But if you lose your life, you're going to find it. If you give up your life and say, I want my life to exist for God's greatest glory, Jesus says, that's when you will experience true life. When you stop living for yourself and start living for the glory of the Father, then and only then will you find true fulfillment in life. Verse 29. <clears throat> the crowd that stood there and heard it, said that it had thundered. Others said an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, This voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now was the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. I love verse 32. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Remember, the Gospel of John, we keep having this theme. His hour hasn't come. His hour hasn't come. His hour hasn't come. His hour hasn't come. And then suddenly John chapter 10, I've got other sheep that I have to bring into the fold. John chapter 12, Gentiles start seeking Jesus. He says, my time has now come. His desire is to draw all people to himself draw all people from all nations to himself and this goes back to a messianic psalm psalm 2 where it says ask of me and i will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession if you've had kids do you remember them bringing you their christmas list their birthday gift list you know what's on Jesus' gift list? All nations. All nations. This is what's promised to him in Psalm chapter 2, verse 8. And Jesus is going to receive his full reward. Jesus is going to receive that prize. In Revelation chapter 7, we get this amazing picture where it says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. This is the full reward that Jesus paid for. This is what he came to purchase all peoples, all nations, all tribes, all languages. And I love how Tim Meyer, who serves in our national office, described it that simply having worshipers of one race or one nation before the throne isn't enough. 
it's not big enough praise, it's too one-dimensional, that Jesus deserves praise from this multifaceted, all-nations choir that comes to bring him worship. The kind of worship that we see here in Revelation chapter 7. This is his prize. This is his reward. This is what he longs for. All nations, all peoples, all tribes, all languages bow before him in worship. And how do we find the greatest fulfillment in our lives? By living for Revelation chapter 7. To lay down our lives for the sake of the kingdom. To stop waiting on God to act and God to do something, but say, Lord, you've given me everything I need for life and godliness. I'm going to step into the life you have in store. I'm going to take up my cross, follow you, stop living for myself, and live for the sake of your kingdom, and live for the sake of your glory. So that somehow through my life, can you imagine this? You know the joy of being a parent and giving that special gift to your child. Can you imagine one day in heaven being able to say, Jesus, look what I brought you. Look what I give to you. Lord, through me, the impossible happened. Somehow through me, in my little life, you used me to bring other people into the kingdom. And Lord, you gave me opportunities to help spread your word to the ends of the earth. And so, Lord, somehow through my life, you used me to bring people of all nations and all tribes before your throne. Here, I give it to you. A lot of times we, we think about Revelation where it talks about us receiving different crowns, the crown of life and the crown of righteousness, all these things. And we almost think like we're, we're going to have this trophy case in our heavenly home where we just kind of mount all these trophies. All these crowns. Look at all my crowns. But then there's this picture of the 24 elders who lay down their crowns before the Lord. I love that. That anything we receive for our service to God you say, Lord, I had nothing to do with this. This was all your spirit. This is yours. Now, how many gifts would you like to give Jesus in heaven? Wouldn't it be amazing if we just spend our lives like, Lord, here's another one. Lord, here, here, this is yours. This is for your glory, Jesus. I want to be a part of that. I want to be able to gather together and just, let's just all give him all of our stuff because he deserves it. I don't like sitting on the sidelines. When I played high school football before I messed up my back, we won one game in two seasons, so we weren't good. But there are a lot of games when we were in it. There's a lot of games we were not in it. But the games that we were in, the games that we had a shot of winning, you want to be on the field making a difference. You don't want to be on the sideline just watching you want to be part of it do we want to be a part of that host of heaven just lavishing gifts upon jesus say lord look we here's some folks from india lord look here's some folks from pakistan here's some folks from china here's some folks from argentina jesus all of them are for you that we can together bring your praise this is the moment jesus was waiting for this is why he came all because a couple of Gentiles said to Philip, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. And Jesus says, my time has come. These are the other sheep that I need to bring into the kingdom. 
And if we want our lives to count for most, we will live for his greatest glory. But we can't wait for him to act because he's waiting on us. Think about this pattern you see all through Scripture. When Moses leads the Israelites out of Egypt and they come to the Red Sea, God doesn't part the waters first. He waits for Moses to raise his hands. When they cross the Jordan River, he wants the priest to step into the water first, and then he parts the water. The New Testament says you draw near to God, and then God will draw near to you. Oftentimes with revival, we sit back and we just keep waiting and waiting and waiting. Saying, God, what are you waiting for? And he responds by saying, I'm waiting for you. I'm waiting for you to step into what I've provided for you. I'm waiting for you to take that acorn of your life and let it be broken open so that my kingdom can flourish through you so that your life can be a part of this big kingdom story where one day in Revelation chapter 7, we can stand and look and see this whole assortment of people from all tribes and nations and that old question of, will we recognize each other in heaven? It sure seems like it. Because we can distinguish people from other countries and other tribes. After this I looked. And behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. This is his full reward. This is what Jesus wants. This is what Jesus desires. And it's worth us investing our lives in. Let's pray.